Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 33. Back in the day before podcasts and TV and film, even before novels came about, stories were pretty much told orally. Storytelling in South Asia wasn't just a job people had back in the day to make some money to pay the bills. It was an actual art form that was appreciated and respected and it was a craft that required skill and practice. It was not easy at all. And this is what this episode is going to be about. It's going to be about storytellers of South Asia. We're going to discuss not just the stories that were told back then, but also about the storytellers themselves and how colonialism affected them. Our guest today is Pasha M. Khan. He has a book out on this subject and it's called The Broken Spell, Indian Storytelling and the Romance Genre in Persian and Urdu. It's an awesome book and it's going to be an awesome episode. So before we start, I just got to say that the Brown History Instagram feed, the podcast and the newsletter are all handled by one person and that's me. And honestly, it can get pretty rough and exhausting. And if you'd like to help out, consider being a patron or you can just do a one-time donation. Just visit www.brownhistorypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and let's begin. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm coming into this cold, so I I don't know. Like I I'm not um, I'm not really prepped uh, for for this. Uh, I'm just I'm just so busy that I I don't have any time to uh, to prepare for these things. But luckily, I'm teaching uh, I'm teaching a, a course on uh, on Urdu poetry right now. So yeah, tell us more about that. You know, I, I guess that's a good introduction for people who don't know who you are. <laughs> so uh, to introduce myself. My name is uh, Mohammed Khan Pasha. I'm a professor at the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill University, um, and I'm the chair in Urdu language and culture. I'm, I'm furniture. Um, and uh, the Urdu poetry course that I'm teaching this year um, begins with um, the most recent poets um, and goes backwards to Mir Tapimir, um, Right now I'm teaching it over Zoom and I have something like 300 to 400 uh, auditors in it. Um, So (laughs) clearly people are interested in uh, in poetry. What's interesting is that uh, so many of them, you know, I would say something like at least half of them are from India. um, And, you know, like given the, given what we hear about India these days, the, the kind of marginalization of the Urdu language that's going on over there um, and the kind of attempt to link Urdu to a Muslim identity and to marginalize it on that on that basis that this is a Muslim language. Um, you know, so many of my of my students are non-Muslims from from India, for example, and they're really interested in in learning this stuff. So I'm really glad that uh, that it got the response that it uh, that it got, and uh, yeah, we're having we're having fun. That is amazing. I would love to do an episode on on that subject, but right now the focus of the subject is storytellers. Uh, I know you have a book out on on storytellers of of that era. Sure. Um, so when you say when you say storytellers, I imagine the stereotype storyteller where he he comes into a street of a village or a town and he gathers a crowd and there's a crowd that circles around him with kids sitting down and he tells this great story and everybody is just kind of awed and listening in and then he collects change in the end uh, for his you know for some for his payment of his of what he provided for the crowd which was entertainment and I guess that's my very naive view of it I want I want you to tell me what what is what is the proper view of what a storyteller 
and I'm using the wrong word, the English word version of it, storyteller. But could you tell us the proper words and the proper term for it and what what is it really viewed as? Yeah, sure. So um, when we talk about uh, about kisahans, uh, which is the uh, the Urdu uh, slash Persian term for storyteller, I mean, the um, you're not necessarily wrong because, of course, there are these popular storytellers who operate at the at the street level or in the bazaar. Uh, there are um, there are mentions of. For example, storytellers in Delhi um, reciting on the steps of um, of the Jama Masjid in Delhi, but the way that history works, you know, given that uh, that very often uh, the history that comes down to us, especially from South Asia, uh, is focused on on the elite. Most of the information that we have is about elite storytellers. So, in other words, storytellers. Um, like Darbar Khan, who was the storyteller to the Emperor Akbar, um, storytellers uh, who were operating in sub-imperial courts. Um, and they were mainly telling two stories. They were telling the, the Shah Nami, the, the Persian Book of Kings, uh, Shah Nama, um, or they were telling the Qisai Amir Hamza, the, the adventures of, of Hamza, as it's been translated, for example, recently by Musharraf Ali Farupi. These were the two kissas um, that were, or long stories, dastans. Kissa is story and dastan is long story. Basically, so so this is the this is the idea that a lot of people have have operated with that kissa is a is a short story and dastan is a is a long story. But actually, if we look at kissas, if we when we read them, kissas are often cut up into shorter dastans. So it's not that simple a simple division. Um, but basically, these stories were. Um, for example, the, the story of Amir Hamza was a tale of a hero, uh, Amir Hamza, who was the, the uncle of the, of the prophet, right? And this makes, this makes things dicey in some cases for people who don't want uh, the prophet's family to be depicted in a, in a certain way. He goes off on a series of, of quests. Uh, he winds up trapped in what's called a thalissim, uh, which is an enchanted world, which is produced by sorcerers. What they do is they have um, they have magical devices in which um, they create magic squares and they harness the power of the of the stars to produce magical worlds on the um, on the earth. And some of those worlds are very strange. Like um, there's a there's a thalissim in which everything is made of shit, um, <laughs> and there's a there's a thalissim in which uh, there are giant man-eating ducks, um, and there's a thalissim in which um, the, his enemies are uh, soldiers made of paper, for example. And what he has to do is to fight his way out of the out of the thalissim, this enchanted world. So this is the kind of uh, of tale. That would be that would be told. This is the the level of um, of marvelousness of uh, of fantasticness that um, that would be uh, put forward by these by these storytellers. 
And you know, you can imagine that uh, whoever was listening to them was uh, was enthralled by them. And of course, you know, they they would use certain techniques as well to keep their audiences engaged. Uh, so, you know, in English we have the idea of a cliffhanger. Um, they had that concept as well, where they would leave the the uh, the story. They would break the story at a particularly suspenseful point, right? Um, in some cases, they would, for example, um, <laughs> they would stretch it out. So, for example, everyone wants to wants to know about everyone wants to get to the point where the uh, the hero and his beloved get together, right? They they um, uh, they finally unite. And in some cases, what the storyteller would do, so for example, the uh, 19th, 20th century storyteller Mir Bakker Ali, who died in 1928 and who's referred to as the last storyteller of, uh, of Urdu, what he would do, he says, um, and others say, is to, when he got to, to this uh, this point in which the, the lover is, um, is about to unite with his beloved, he would describe it very slowly so that basically the whole, the, the process of getting into the door would take an entire day. And then maybe the next day as well, they would describe like the next step being taken. Um, and uh, according to one of the, the accounts, one of his patrons got really uh, pissed and he said, you know, enough already, just, just do it. Um, but for example, they might uh, they might ask for more money to speed it up. So obviously, storytelling was a transaction, right? Yeah. Um, and um, storytellers would play to their audiences uh, in terms of what they thought their audiences wanted, in terms of the amount of time they had, uh, in terms of keeping their audiences coming back. And in terms of what their audiences were willing to to pay to uh, to see, right? Um, so, for example, um, if an emperor wanted um, an evil character to be not to be killed, um, you know, some emperors were very uh, grew very attached um, to enemy characters, which is weird, but uh, or maybe not so weird, given that emperors are not necessarily uh, cute and uh, normal. And uh, yeah, and um, uh, cuddly guys. Um, so they would pay the storyteller to make sure that the that the enemy character was not uh, was not killed, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not just like something that uh, that the storyteller is reading off of a page of paper, right? It's not it's not totally scripted by any means. It's something that he is. There is some kind of script, but the storyteller is. Um, uh, weaving it in the process of telling it according to his uh, his circumstances. Is is there like a general theme to the stories being told? You know, lessons or maybe I don't know if you know of Joseph Campbell. You know, where the hero kind of learns a lesson in the end. Do do right. they have a certain theme or and also is there a diff? I know you have your Persian storytellers and you have your Urdu storytellers. Is there a difference between them? Do they kind of interlink with each other or do they have like East Coast, West Coast rap tension between each other? <laughs> um, so 
differences between Persian and uh, and Urdu storytellers there there isn't there isn't very much uh, at all. The Urdu storytelling tradition, at least the elite tradition, is very much a continuation of um, of the Persian uh, storytelling tradition. But there are um, there are tales that are told mainly in um, in the subcontinent in in Hindustan or you know what we call India. Um, and there are tales that are told mainly in Iran. So especially after, um, you know, maybe the 16th century, the Shahnama, the Book of Kings, became kind of institutionalized as the story to tell in Iran. Whereas in India, they were more, um, more often telling the story of Amir Hamza. And that had to do with um, with an idea that um, the Book of Kings, the Shahnama, was a book about Iran and Iranian dynasties, whereas in the in the Pisai Mirhamza, uh, Iran doesn't look so great. Uh, the the main Iranian emperor in this uh, in this tale, Nushirwan, um, is the father of Amir Hamza's uh, beloved. Uh, and he's misled by his uh, by his viziers, his prime ministers, uh, in into opposing Hamza, into opposing the the uh, the hero of the story. So there's definitely a kind of on the basis of uh, dynastic identity, there is a um, a difference there between the between the two. But also in terms of um, um, regional or um, local. Uh, stories. I mean, I haven't spoken so far about stories aside from uh, the Shahnam or the or the tale of Amir Hamza. There were local uh, South Asian stories, of course, uh, and there continue to to be like the like the Pisai Hatimtai, the the story of Hatimtai, um, or you know stories um, of the um, stories told by the the parrot and the the mina bird, for example. Um, that were local to India and that weren't normally told in in Iran, uh, and that were set in an Indian setting, for example. And you know, of course, aside from Urdu and Persian, there were story there was storytelling in other languages as well. For example, in in Punjabi, that was that was totally um, different in some cases from the the Urdu and Persian stories. What what were the value of storytellers in society? Did they make good money, or were they seen as just people who entertain or was there kind of a snobby serious kind of art form look to it yeah so so right now um or i should say in the 20th century because um you know the 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 novel like <laughs> these days when, when my students uh, when my students submit essays um sometimes they they refer to like everything that they read as uh, as a novel right <laughs> and that shows no i don't know why they do that but but it shows how important the novel has become in our society right um when we read something uh we're often reading a novel what we what we want what people want to put on their reading lists are novels and the novel in south asia only becomes important by the end of the of the 19th century so you know around uh, 120 years ago or so mm. um 
And the novel at that time, like today we have all kinds of crazy things happening in novels and we have different genres of novels, you know, sci-fi, fantasy and, and whatever, which come closer to the world that the, that the Pisa depicted. But especially for the British back then, the novel was something that, um, that had to be realistic. It had to show um, uh, events and characters that operated according to reason. You know, the, the British were on a, were on a, uh, a reason kick at that time. Wow. Um, and they, and they really wanted to, um, to put South Asians, to fit South Asians into that same, into that same mold. And they succeeded to, to a great degree. Uh, and one of the, um, one of the problems with that, one of the the losses, I should say, that um, that that produced was that South Asians began to see these fantastic tales as um, as childish, right? Because the British uh, associated them with children, and they associated the you know quote unquote Oriental mind with uh, with with childishness, right? That you know they wow they they really like these uh, these stories. Um, they they must uh, believe them, um, and therefore they're like children. They don't have the kind of mental capacity that uh, that uh, British adults have to appreciate um, novels that are um, that are actually depicting things that happen in the in the world. So by the nineteenth century, by the end of the nineteenth century, especially um, these pisas are devalued in this way because you know because they. Uh, contain um, dragons and uh, giant man-eating ducks. Wow! Before before the British came, uh, before colonialism, you know, came in. Uh, what was the value of storytellers within within the society of South Asia? Right, and that's a, that's a good question. So, even before the British came, there was a there was a debate, of course, over um, whether kisas were valuable and, and definitely the most important um, genre of, um, of verbal art or literature was the was the ghazal uh, poetry was was very important and kisas that were recited were very often in in prose um, rather than poetry but nevertheless they were they were highly valued um, and the reasons are are many. Storytellers put forward the um, the argument that what Pisas did was to first of all improve your language, uh, that they, they they were presented in an exemplary language, a language that uh, that people uh, could uh, could learn from and improve their their own linguistic skills uh, by. And also that they presented lessons for for uh, rulers, especially, on how to wage battle, on how to conduct warfare, um, and on how to deal with uh, with the enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was a very um, that was a point that was stressed by many by many storytellers, um, and then. You know, more generally, the idea that the that the hero of these um, of these stories was someone whose ethics, whose morals could be uh, could be emulated, was something that uh, that was uh, put forward by by storytellers and sometimes by the by the stories themselves. But of course, you know, one of the the kind of tricky things with regard to the heroes is that 
you know, the Dastan Amir Hamza, the Qisa Amir Hamza, or the Adventures of Amir Hamza is about the uncle of the Prophet. Yeah. Um, there's another there's another story, the Khawaran Nama, which which was uh, popular in uh, in Iran, but we also have copies in uh, in South Asia. That was about the uh, adventures of Ali, the the um, the cousin and um, and uh, son-in-law of the of the Prophet, for example. There are all these Shi'i leaning tales that uh, that involve these characters. And you know, I went to the British Library uh, some years ago and I looked at a copy of the Khawaran Nama, which is by the way never been been uh, edited and, and published it's just a manuscript copy mm-hmm. and you know there are there are uh, images of um of ali and his uh, and his crew um Whoa. hanging out with with giant uh, seven foot uh, uh, purple gins and uh, and this kind of this kind of stuff so you know you can imagine that some people would be would be wary of this and qisa khans would say at the beginning of their stories you know this is just something i heard right this yeah. is not uh, this is i'm not responsible for um for the truth or the falsehood of of this right so they didn't present it as, as something that uh, was necessarily true often but they but they also didn't say that it was not true <laughs> so they kind of hedged their bets in that way how, okay. Um, how did storytellers improve on their craft? Because I understand from reading your book that they had like they made manuals on how to how to be a good storyteller and what storytellers should do. Absolutely. Yeah. So these manuals, and I'm indebted to my uh, my colleague Professor uh, Usman Hamid for um, for giving me access to a copy of uh, of this. Um, we know of at least one manual for for storytellers called the the Tirazul Akbar, which was uh, created in the 17th century in uh, in India in Patna by a um, an Iranian storyteller who had emigrated to to India. His name was Abdul Nabi Fakhru Zamani. Uh, he was from Tazwin in in Iran. There's actually another one that is that used to be um, in Lahore. But when I went to the uh, Punjab University Library to try to find it, the um, the librarian told me that uh, the person it had belonged to after he passed away, his son was a heroin addict, and so he just sold all of his um, his father's uh, manuscripts wow. to pay for his for his drug habit. Um, so you know, so that manuscript we have no idea where it is it's just been sold by this by this druggie to i don't know the the garbage collector um so anyways but the Akbar itself um this one manual for storytellers that uh, that remains contains an introduction in which the storyteller tells us how exactly uh to perform what kinds of um techniques storytellers should should use what it shows one of the things that it shows is that storytellers even in india are performing in coffee houses um so this is something that's very much associated with iran and in uh and with the ottoman empire um and coffee doesn't come back to at least north india until the, the 20th century um so you know when i was when i was growing up uh, if we went back to Pakistan, it was impossible to get uh, to get coffee. Uh, we only had uh, had tea. Um, but back then, 
coffee was being uh, was being served in uh, in India, especially in places where travelers would come from from Iran. So there was a lot of coffee house performances for people who were traveling uh, into the into the country. Um, what the what the manual was uh, the majority of it was a series of quotations from other sources. So what storytellers would do basically is that they would memorize a lot, a lot, a lot. And, you know, I don't have that kind of memorization capacity. Um, it seems like nobody in our age uh, does because of, uh, because of the internet and everything being, you know, we, when mm -hmm. we want to remember something, we just look at our, yeah. at our phones. 100%. So, but storytellers would memorize these, uh, these snippets of, um, of poetry and prose from pre-existing sources, and they would weave them together into their, into their narrative. So for example, if they wanted to, um, to quote uh, something that was, if, if, for example, they were describing a battle and they wanted to, um, they wanted to describe the elephant, the war elephant that was, um, that was being, uh, put forward by the by the enemy, they might think, oh, um, I know this uh, this piece of poetry about a war elephant uh, that I read in this manual for storytellers, for example, and they would recite it and they would make the um, they would make the the story more uh, luscious by by this means. And of course, you know, people loved uh, um, uh, the interpolation of poetry into into prose, uh, just as you know, some of them do right now. It sounds like these storytellers are very, very intelligent people. If they're using, you know, fancy language, if they're if they're teaching emperors war lessons, then they must be really, I mean, educated or self-educated people. Absolutely. Um, so, for example, um, Fakhr Zamani uh, came from from a long line of uh, of Sufis. Um, Darbar Khan was the was the son of a storyteller who. Uh, who told his stories at the at the um, uh, Iranian court? Darbar Khan was Akbar, the the Mughal emperor's uh, storyteller, and he was the son of um, of a storyteller uh, in the imperial um, employ in in Iran. And Darbar Khan was also he wasn't just a storyteller; he was also like a, a diplomat, uh, and he was uh, he was working for Akbar in a um, in a kind of um, um, uh, reconnaissance um, uh, capacity as well. So clearly, these were these were well educated uh, people in in many cases. But we also have um, we also have storytellers, uh, for example, working in in Punjabi, uh, like um, uh, let's see, uh, Kamaldin Kamaldin in the in the twentieth century, who were uh, basically we we would call them even though they were Muslim. We would call them lower caste. They're the mirasis, um, and they're the musicians. The, yeah, they're they're often musicians, um, yeah. and uh, and what they uh, their their mental capacity is not necessarily due to any kind of you know formal education. Uh, it's due to um, it's due to the way in which their their elders have have educated them right in the tradition. Um, so it's it's more about that rather than about you know going to, I mean, I advocate for university learning, but, uh, or, you know, going to college or whatever, 
but uh, but but of course these these Marasis were um, were trained by their elders or by um, you know um, teachers in their tradition rather than formally. So okay, so storytelling was a great art form once upon a time, and then the British come in and they bring the novel, and now all of a sudden this industry that was blooming and on top is slowly dying out. What happens to the storytellers? How do they survive? Do they, I guess, change jobs or do they try different ways to to win back the audience? So one of the things that uh, that happens aside from the from the novel is that storytellers get uh, get supplanted by by films. Um, so, you know, you can imagine what a story, what storytelling is uh, is like. My my friend uh, Danish Hussain, who is also a, a Bollywood uh, actor, is also uh, a modern storyteller, for example. Um, and the way that he tells stories is very much um, inspired by the way in which these, uh, these Kisahans uh, or Dastangos told stories. And um, you can imagine that it's not just, you know, sitting there with a, with a book and reading off the page. You know, they're, they're making gestures. They're um, raising their, their selves. They're modulating their, their voice. They're changing the way that they recite according to the according to the situation and so it's almost it's theatrical right it's dramatic it's uh, like a uh, a dramatic performance on stage um, and so when films came became accessible to to people um, that became a, a kind of a point of rivalry for for these uh, for these storytellers um, but and it supplanted their their uh, their craft to a great deal. But also, these films, especially earlier Bollywood films, would often use the same kisas, the same uh, stories that these storytellers would be would be telling. Um, so um, you know, especially popular stories like Alibaba and whatnot. Yes, yes. All right. Someone is hitting a door. A cat is is tapping a door. It's my cat. Yeah, sorry. That's all right. You heard the meows as well. Probably. Yeah, I did. But that's okay. <laughs> okay. So Raskula Bila, he's the he's the king of my house. Um, yeah. So um, carry on. So what I was saying about um, you you were asking about film. Uh, film and uh, what were and they doing to survive what were they doing how, what what they yeah, were doing to survive what was happening to them now because they were out of jobs i guess so they were out of money mm-hmm. they must be struggling to to survive absolutely and in the in the 20th century what we see is that um it's not only because the because of lack of interest in the in the pisa it's also because their their traditional means of, of patronage are dying so so for example uh, the Mughal emperor is not uh, is not there anymore after mm-hmm. 1850 after 1857 the Mughal dynasty is is finished um, local rulers are um, are slowly dropping off um, you know the these uh, uh, princely states are being finished by uh, by Nehru's government or you know in, in Pakistan um, 
And so they're losing their traditional um, modes of, uh, of patronage, at least the elite uh, storytellers. And so Mir Bakar Ali Dastango, uh, the last storyteller of, uh, of Delhi, uh, who passed away in 1928, is really the last major Urdu storyteller that we know in the, in the 20th century. Um, you know, the, as, far as, as far as we know, in Urdu, this, uh, this, this profession of storytelling that he embodied seems to have just finished. There is no survival as such. What there is by the 21st century is a revival mm -hmm. um, by the... Um, so what happens is that the scholar Shamsuraman Faruqi, uh, who uh, passed away recently and who lived in Allahabad, India, um, wrote a series of books on uh, the Qissa in, in Urdu. It's called uh, uh, Shahi Sahari uh, Shahi Sahib Qirani. Um, and through his, uh, his scholarship, storytellers begin to pick up the old traditions and to tell them um, on the stage. So storytellers like, uh, like Danush Hussain, uh, Fozia Dastango, for example. Um, so this tradition only really begins to be picked up again in Urdu uh, by the 21st century. There are other local traditions happening. So for example, uh, in Bengal or in Punjab on the very kind of um, low caste, for example, um, scale, these traditions are still, are still going on. Um, but at the, uh, at the kind of middle class and elite level, um, the, these traditions are only picked up again by the 21st century. And the, you know, unfortunately, even in the, in the 20, 20th century and 21st century, these other local, especially rural traditions, we don't have very much record of, of them because people uh, who were gathering documents to, to produce history just weren't paying attention to the Punjabi or the, or the Bengali um, storytellers. So the answer is that, you know, for the Urdu storytellers, at least, there was no survival. There was a revival in the 21st century. Okay. And you kind of, you kind of mentioned this a bit, but how did film come into play with Kissas? Did that, that yeah. must have been a great second chance for these stories to kind of move forward and be preserved. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I wish I could, I wish I could show um, <laughs> some of the, some of the stories that, uh, that have been made into, into well, Give films. me some, give me some examples. Maybe there are people. Well, who... for example, for example, there is the, there's the series of Hatintai uh, films, the, the stories of Hatintai. These are like, so especially by, by our um, kind of, um, snobbish standards. These are often considered uh, B-grade films, uh, you know, or for example, Pakistani films that uh, that contain these crazy, these crazy like horror-like elements. Yeah, are are not uh, considered highbrow. But for example, in the in the Hatintai, one of the one of the the scenes that I that I remember is that Hatintai and his sidekick Nazru are are sitting beneath uh, beneath the tree having having a picnic, and suddenly the trees come to come to life. This is like a 1992 film. The trees come to life, and they're like ants in in Lord of the Rings, for example. And they're they're walking around with you know with 
their branches as claws and they're shooting red light out of their eyes. They have eyes with, with red light. So it's like a, a weird horror film mm-hmm. and it looks really campy. It looks really cheesy, uh, but it's also really fascinating, um, for example. Or there's another scene in that uh, in that film in which um, Hatim fights a leopard who, who jumps out at him from a tree. And the left, like, it's obviously a stuffed leopard, mm-hmm. first of all. And his, you know, he he kills it and and his his knife, it looks like it has ketchup on it. Uh, it's really, it's really, you know, they're really kind of cheap effects and really, um, but also really fun and uh, and fantastical. And they really embody the the kind of crazy things that happen in the in the Kisa tradition. Um, so, you know, Hatim um, Tai, uh, the stories of um, of Sikandar, Alexander the Great, um, the stories of uh, Ali Baba, Ali Baba or Chalis Chor, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, right, uh, is there, and um, you know, as um, as the uh, the century progresses, as as the twentieth century progresses, these these stories are are still there into the into the nineties, and so, and they they still are there. It's just that. Very often, they're getting made into TV serials nowadays, rather than rather than uh, rather than films. I'm curious. Um, you know, during Maharam in the Majlises, it's mm. it's the Molana goes up and he tells this this whole story, and the audience cries, and there's a really big emotion. You know, he's really kind of exploiting Absolutely. the audience's emotions and their their love for Imam Hussein and and etc. Is yeah. that is that tied to Story Absolutely. form telling in Iran and in South Asia? Absolutely. So very often the storytellers were Shi'is. They were very often Shia. Yeah. Um, and storytellers that, were often Shia back then. Exactly. Really? Yeah. That's insane. Um, yeah. So, for example, uh, Fakhra Zamani was, uh, would have been a, a, a Shia. Um, and the, the um, practice, the Shia practice of Marcia Khani, the practice of uh, of telling long narrative um, stories in poetry about Karbala, about, uh, about the, uh, the killing of, um, of Hussein and, and the family of the prophet. Um, that was also performed in this kind of dramatic way, um, in, especially in the 19th uh, century. Um, and so, you know, they would, they would kind of use the power of their of their voices to have this emotional effect on their on their audiences and uh, they would probably uh, move in the same way as storytellers and we know that storytellers and marcia khans the the reciters of these uh, of these poems in remembrance of the family of the prophet were watching each other's performances Mm. and in some cases they were one and the same um, a person. In some cases, uh, these storytellers were also uh, reciting poetry or prose uh, in commemoration of uh, of Hussein and, and his family. Um, and so, there's totally a, a connection between the between the two. Um, the the two traditions are affecting each other very very closely. That's that's um, that's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. If people would want to know more about Kissas and they want to read more stories, instead of watching the TV shows, you said, 
which books you think they should go back and and see because there's a lot of books written not on it but of it with the art you know with the mughal arts and there's beautiful pictures that go with the writing so is there any i'm sure they're all online you can like find them on archives and things like that i think is there any books you recommend for someone to just get a good introduction to it sure self-promo time um so first of all my my own uh, my own book uh, the Broken Spell by by Muhammad Khan Pasha, published in 2019 by Wayne State University Press. Very good is, book. Uh, is a good uh, introduction to, to the Qasa form. But also they should read The Adventures of Amir Hamza by Musharraf Ali Faruqi, which is a translation of a short uh, Urdu version, even though it's, it's like huge. Uh, it's actually a, a shorter Urdu version of the tale of, uh, of Amir Hamza, they should definitely read that. My uh, PhD supervisor, Francis Pritchett, wrote a book uh, about, um, uh, called the Urdu, uh, I believe it's called the Urdu Romance Tradition. I need to, I would need to check up on that. Uh, but also, you know, you mentioned um, uh, images and, you know, just to, just to give you some context, what would happen in especially Akbar's court uh, is that there would be storytellers who did what they called pardakhani, which was which was when they held up or they would have someone hold up an image and they would tell the story on the basis of what was happening in the in the image or with the help of what was happening in the in the image. And that's something that uh, Orhan Pamuk uh, describes, for example, in his novel "My Name Is Red," which which involves a lot of storytellers in um, in uh, Turkey. Um, so. To see those images, of course, they're they're online. They're scattered all over the place. But um, uh, John Saylor and Ebba Koch uh, have a um, a volume uh, called, uh, I believe, the same thing: "The Adventures of, of Amir Hamza," um, which uh, is unfortunately not available online. But if you can get a copy of it uh, at your at your library, then you can see those images. You can also I guess go to to various museum uh, web pages and uh, and Google them, but no one has actually put them all together online, which should be easy to do. It's surprising that nobody has done it yet. I just remembered a question. You know, what is your issue with genre, with the term genre? Because there's something <laughs> you talk about a lot, and I couldn't really grasp it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to when it comes to genre. Um, so basically what I was asking myself um, when I undertook this study is, okay, what is the, what is the Qissa? The Qissa is a genre of, uh, of literature uh, or a genre of verbal art. So, but first of all, I had to answer what is a, what is a genre, right? You know, going mm -hmm. back to, going back to basics. Um, and as I, as I researched the kind of theory on, on genre, I realized that um, it's much more uh, fluid and constructed than, than, you, than you imagine. So for example, um, what the British in the 19th century might've been quite different from what we think of as a, as a novel in the, in the 21st century. Um, so Salman Rushdie's uh, Midnight's Children uh, or, um, you know something like that life of life of pi mm -hmm. um 
might not have been counted by by the British as novels. They they might have been thought of as romances because they they contain these these things that couldn't uh, couldn't happen, right? Tigers and yeah. and um, crazy, you know, um, this idea of, of magic realism, for example, might not have been taken by the British as uh, as A novel. real real novels, and so the way in which we classify um, literature into genres has changed over over time. Um, and so uh, one of the uh, one of the the results of this is that um, depending on how you define a, uh, a piece of, uh, of literature according to a genre, um, they also have different values. So for example, the Qissa was valued differently in the 16th century, it was valued more highly than it was in the, in the 19th century. Um, and so this is, this is really most of what I was trying to get at with my, with my reflections on, on genre, but also, uh, the other thing that, uh, that I wanted to stress is that sometimes we can see traces of different genres in a text that belongs to another genre. So for example, um, in, um, in a history, uh, we might see something that reminds us of, of a kissa, um, or in a kissa, we might see something that reminds us of history. For example, in, a, in the kissa of Amir Hamza, Amir Hamza we know is a, is a historical character. Right. Um, you know, my my dad uh, once asked me about uh, about him. You know, oh, are these are these stories about about him true? You know, he's a, he's a real historical character. Are these stories true? And and then he yeah. answered himself, no, they, they couldn't be true. They have uh, they have man eating ducks in them, right? So you know, so so um, the there's a certain effect produced by the by the presence of a historical element in Akissa, right? People are really interested in this because they think, oh, I know about this, this character, this character lived. And, you know, could he have done all of these things? Um, you know, or why is, is he, he the one being, uh, being talked about? So in other words, genres kind of crisscross into each other and they, they kind of infect one another. That's, that's all that I was trying to, uh, mm -hmm. the, the point that I was trying to make with, uh, with that. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but but that's for uh, nerds. Um, I think that's all we have. Though I had the questions for this. Um, is there, <laughs> Maybe, is, there some, yeah. is there something you want to add in? You know, before we go, do you want to you want to talk about your next plug in something? No, it's okay. No? Well, all right. Okay, look. Okay, look. I'll I'll tell you about the about my next uh, project. Which there is, we go. Which is a translation. Um, I'm working on a translation of a kisa. It's called the Kisai Agarogul. Um, and it's about a um, it's about the daughter of the minister of the of the king of Poppy Seed City, uh, who because the Poppy Seed the, City. Poppy Seed City, Poppy Seed City, yeah. Um, who the the um, the prince is kidnapped by uh, by a demon who falls in love with him. Uh, the, the demon uh, falls in love with the with the prince, and he um, abducts him. And so there is no heir to the throne. 
So they turned the daughter of the, of the vizier, of the minister, into a new prince. And uh, he lives his life out as, uh, as a man, as, as a prince. And eventually the original prince comes back and he really, and uh, Agar, the, the new prince uh, who was born as a, as a girl, really does not want to uh, turn back into, into, uh, into oh, a wow. girl. So, so it's a story about, about this, about, you know, how, um, how this kind of, you know, what we would now call a, a trans character uh, is, uh, is depicted in this, uh, in this story and how eventually uh, he is forced to turn back into a, into a woman. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. What, what is Poppy Seed City? That's like a city, it's an actual city? <laughs> no, it's not an actual city. Oh. It's just a, they just named the city Poppy Seed City. I don't know why. Okay. All right. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it off the recording now.